Support for Gig with Mike Redman comes from Music Connection. For 45 years, connecting artists and musicians with each other and the industry. And you can find them on the web at musicconnection.com. Welcome to Gig, the ultimate podcast for learning about jobs in the music and film industry. I'm your host, Mike Redman, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Adam Taylor, the president of APM, about music libraries. Adam will tell us about the intricate workings of managing one of the largest music libraries on the planet. We'll also talk about the merits of exclusive contracts with libraries, effective strategies for getting your music into a library, and we'll have a discussion on current trends shaping the industry, both positive and negative. And other than the gig theme music, all music in this episode is courtesy of Associated Production Music. So, let's dive right in. Hi, Adam. How you doing? Good, Michael. How are you? Good Uh, to see you. Oh, it's good to see you too. Uh, you're in California right now. I am. I'm up in a little town called Ojai. Oh, I love Ojai. Played golf there once. Ah, yeah. There's a there are a couple of golf courses here. So we, um, yeah, we bought a house here about a year and a half ago, and we spent half of our time here and half in Los Angeles. So. Oh, that's that's awesome. So Adam, uh, I thought we'd just kind of jump right into this, and and uh, you're the president of APM, one of the world's leading production music libraries. Would you tell us a little bit about your job as kind of the president? What does the president do in a company like that? Hmm. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's a music company. <laughs> I know what I I know what I did yesterday. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do today or tomorrow because it changes every day. And I think that that is kind of one of the beautiful and most interesting things about the uh, the industry that we are in. And um, you know, I've often said that the library business is kind of like a, a crucible. It's, uh-huh. it's, it's a melting pot of things that go in and get, it's a cauldron and things get tested because you know, we're able to be very nimble. And so really, you know, my job uh, in running the company is, you know, they're the obvious things of managing the people and making sure that everything runs well. We spend a lot of time on uh, improving our operations, a lot of time on really uh, making sure we're giving back to our staff and we're getting the most out of them, giving them the tools that they need. Uh, so those are very important aspects. It's then very important for me to understand what's happening in the industry at large. And that, and the when I say the industry at large, there are many industries that it, it is, it's really incumbent upon me and almost everybody in the company to really keep an eye on. And we obviously have the markets that we license into film and TV, Video games, sports, advertising, corporate, other areas of education and government and uh, religion and other areas uh, uh, of the markets. And then, of course, there are the newer markets of new media stuff and Web3, Metaverse, NFTs, um, et cetera. And then, of course, social media uh, as that evolves and changes. Uh, so uh, just that alone is kind of a full-time job. And uh, But then you also have to... Uh, understand what's going on with technology. And obviously technology has changed the entire set of value propositions and and the delivery uh, mechanisms, the whole supply chain of music uh, from creation to discovery to, um, you know, collection, monitoring, tracking, all these kinds of things. And now with AI coming in, we're looking at all of the legal implications of that and, uh, so um, I've got to keep my uh, uh, eye, one eye kind of focused on the larger technology universe and the future of where that's going. 
On the other side, it's uh, the markets that we serve. Um, and then, uh, obviously, the music that we have. APM is kind of unique from other library companies in that we were set up to represent libraries that were owned by our owner companies. And so and we represent them in the United States and Canada. We've since taken on the representation of a lot of other music in addition. But we have to pay attention to the music. And then there's the day-to-day operational stuff to make sure we have a healthy operating company. Wow. That is a big, that's a big job. That's a lot to it. And I think the problem. Yeah, no, I got, I got to oh, go. Yes. <laughs> I'll see you later. I'm really busy. I got to get out of here. Uh, it is interesting because um, one of the things that I'm hoping with these uh, podcasts for both film and the music side is to, uh, especially for the music business to underline business. Uh, I kind of try to sometimes uh, use an, an analogy that music, you know, music is a product. It's a donut. You're selling donuts. So let's stop talking about the donut and let's talk about the business for a while. Well, I tell, you know, my boys are, are electronic music composers and DJs and they produce, they produce DJ shows also. And, um, Soshin Mosh for anybody who's following, but, uh, the, um, I always tell them that there are two words in the phrase music business, you know, and I, I tell that to any artist who, uh, uh, who I talk to, it's so, so important. And I've seen so many artists who don't pay attention at all to the music, to the business side. Is it possible for a musician or artist to make a living from production music licensing alone? So there are composers, songwriters, who do make most of their income from libraries. Uh, Certainly in the older days when the library industry was smaller and there were far fewer competitors and far fewer composers um, adding to the mix, um, a lot of composers, very, very good ones, spent virtually all of their time focusing on library because they had a very good sense of what they were going to make. And yes, there are people who make uh, their entire living from library. However, I think in today's world, that's not really a good idea. I think that there are, um, you know, the the record companies, the major publishers, uh, even if you were to get signed to one, they could only really support and promote a relatively small percentage of the people that they're signing up. And so, even if you're signed, but particularly if you're not, if you're doing it yourself, it's incumbent upon you to use all of the tools that are available to you to build your career and to um, make money from or try to make money from all of those different things. So uh, you need a bunch of legs to the the table. You know, you, if you're a session player, do session work. If you can tour, tour if, uh, the writing. Uh, playing things on social media, um, obviously Spotify and everything else and sync and any other way, TikTok videos, any, any way that you can to, uh, to make, uh, money. Yeah, that's, um, that's the response I expected. I have, uh, friends that, you know, that are in LA that have five different revenue streams, you know, and, uh, I would hate to have to be depending on a library to, you know, uh, waiting on a check to pay my rent? Well, I think you don't want to wait on any one of those. Uh, You want to really, you know, put your eggs in a variety of different baskets. And the library business is, um, it's unpredictable in the sense that it is uh, up to the client what music they're going to use. So we can put it out there. And, you know, we license 
uh, in a couple of different ways. We have needle drop licensing, obviously, where somebody is finding a track. They like the track and they use it and they pay for it. And the other are the blanket agreements. And in a sense, uh, you know, even though we pay out based on the uses that are reported to us, we um, it's still an access model. You know, so they're paying, they're doing play, paying a blanket fee to have access to our library and obviously to utilize it. And so um, whether they use one track or another, it's all under the blanket agreement. And so um, you may or may not get used in any particular time frame. And so there are vagaries and, and things go up and down. So it's not... Um, that predictable, but I think that if you want to have success in the library business, the key is to uh, write a lot of music, to have a, a bunch of music there. If you're dependent upon a very small amount, that's uh, only going to generate a small amount because you don't know which music is going to get used. You need to have a bunch of stuff in there so you increase your chances of getting used regardless of which track it is. If I'm a really prolific composer, and I'm just writing all the time, and I've got a couple hundred tracks that are, you know, pretty good, and they're sitting around doing nothing, should I think about approaching a library? Should I put them on my website, have my own little library? Uh, how would you, what would you tell somebody like that? A good question, and it really depends. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to go. My instinct would be that you're best off getting the music into a library that is going to promote it, that has relationships, that has um, pre-existing agreements with various clients, and um, that so therefore uh, you know that your music is going to get out there and be seen by a lot of people. Um, and I think today, you know, there's been consolidation. There are a few large libraries. And there are some medium-sized ones. Uh, and then there are a whole bunch of small ones. I don't know really what kind of traction the smaller ones get. Um, <clears throat> but if you want to do it yourself, you certainly can. But then you have to spend the effort to actually get the music out there. So probably, you know, you have to do it yourself or you have to hire people. Um, and that takes money and it takes time. And if your main focus is on wanting to write then you might be better off going with a an existing essentially distribution uh company that can uh can get it out there that would be my uh, advice you know alternatively if you wanted to try to build up a big business it's going to have to be done with more than just your own music Okay, I'm uh, the same person. I've got a couple hundred tracks. I've decided, you know what, I am going to go with the library. Uh, but you know, I'm you know, I'm like a lot of artists. I'm uh, very you know careful. I don't want anybody touching my music, messing with my music. I'm looking for the most opportunities, uh, and I know that there is. And I will use their name. I know those guys. They have a great company. There's Pond Fives. There's non-exclusive licensing companies out there and i could and there's 10 of them i could go with 20 of them 30 of them that could put my music with everybody or there's a company like yours that's an exclusive you you uh you exclusively license so once i put it with your company i can't put it with other companies or i shouldn't try because it's the you'll mess it up so would you explain what the advantages and disadvantages are of having a company that is exclusively licensing your music Sure. 
So, you know, I'm, uh, as you mentioned before, or hinted to, I'm uh, uh, in favor of the exclusive libraries, not in favor of the non-exclusive ones, and partially because that's APM's model. But really, <clears throat> I think that there are a number of uh, advantages and then disadvantages of the non-exclusive side. Uh, to me, it's uh, this is a piece of intellectual property that you have. And it deserves to be managed by somebody, not just thrown into a, uh, you know, a search engine that somebody, you know, gets, uh, it's just one among many and things are crowdsourced and, and shoved up onto various systems. And, um, you know, we're very, very careful, all of the tracks that we have and, and all of the libraries that were in our model uh, are curated, they're hand-selected for quality. And so assuming that your works are of good quality, that you can attract a library uh, that is exclusive, I think that's the way to go. You're going to get better attention. That's number one. Number two is there are a lot of um, companies, uh, networks and studios and others who won't deal with non-exclusive suppliers. And uh, they're worried about the legal ramifications, the indemnifications, the vetting of the tracks. Um, and I, there are uh, a variety of these non-exclusive companies. I won't mention any names, but I would say at least 10 of the major ones, um, that, including ones you know well, uh, where we have found our tracks up there illegally. Because um, people po take our stuff and they just post it up, and uh, nobody and some of the I can't speak for all of these companies, but they're not necessarily vetting them, and so there are often copyright issues. The other thing is that um, people use music without permission, and it, it's just a fact. And we find it ourselves, and we approach those clients to work out a deal, or if we have to. Um, you know, work towards a settlement or, you know, in rare cases, a lawsuit if somebody's not cooperative. But we have a fiduciary and moral obligation to take care of the libraries we represent and the composers who have contributed the music. And it's incumbent upon us to have to go after people and, and pursue copyright infringement. If you are the only way you in the United States that you can uh, pursue a copyright infringement, sue for copyright infringement, is if you are the exclusive supplier. So by law, if you're a non-exclusive supplier, you cannot pursue that path. So if you're looking for somebody who uh, can conceivably protect you, protect your copyrights, um, identify um, uh, uses, um, and go after the payments, then uh, you have to go with an exclusive, uh, exclusive one. So I think the combination of the care that libraries take about what music they're going to bring in, the attention that they give that music, um, the legal aspects, the fact that there are a lot of clients who are or do not use music from non-exclusive uh, suppliers, um, I think it's an important uh, thing for somebody to to really consider. Um, there's a glut of music on the, in, in the market, obviously. And, and the idea of sending something out uh, to these different companies um, just increases the perception of the glut. Um, also, these many of these companies change the names of the tracks. Um, and it's the only kind of intellectual property that people do this with. Why music? You know, it, you don't take a book and publish it under five names or a movie under five names, you know. <laughs> Why do that? 
and then also a lot of the um, uh, the library. I'm sorry, a lot of um, technology uh, payments, the ability to pay, uh, whether it's sync recognition or performance recognition or mechanical or anything, is in today's world based on audio recognition. And so if there are multiple versions of a track out there, then the system and everybody's putting it into YouTube's content ID or into other systems or at the PROs or whatever, um, you're just going to get uh, conflicting claims and nobody's going to collect. If there are two claims in YouTube, then nobody gets the money until those things are resolved. And part of the reason that, that companies don't want to license from uh, non-exclusive suppliers is that they don't know, you know where it came from and what if there are two different prices and they don't know whom to go to if there's an issue. And, you know, there's a lot of issues around that. So I think in the larger scheme of things on the B2B side, you know, when you're really talking about professional users of your music, you're much, much better off going with a, um, a company that is a, uh, uh, an exclusive supplier. If you're talking about uh, you know, social media, since you want to put in your TikTok video or your YouTube video about your cat or your whatever, and, you know, then, then I think you may have some, some options, even though the content ID issues are still an issue, because somebody could have non-exclusive and not put it into content ID, but because it's not exclusive, somebody else could take it and then put it up in content ID, and then you've got conflicting claims and and all kinds of uh, issues surrounding it. I think if you care about your music, if it's good, then in my opinion, you should go with an exclusive one. And I'm sure people from Pond5 and other companies will argue the opposite. And they'll probably have some cogent uh, reasons why they think I'm wrong. And that's fair. So what are, if I, okay, so I'm this uh, same person with the 200 tracks. And um, what would be some of the, smarter questions I could ask a library before signing with them exclusively for all my music? Uh, you know, I think you would ask, uh, what do you plan to do with it? How does it get marketed? Uh, how does it not get buried? These are questions that I get uh, uh, asked. Um, obviously, you could ask, you know, what kind of money do you think I might be able to make? Most companies won't answer that because you just don't know. And again, it's up to the clients who are going to use the music. Um, uh, what's how long is the deal for? What are the splits? Um, what happens if somebody infringes on my music? Are you able to go after that? Uh, what happens if my track contains something that infringes on somebody else's track? What happens there? Um, and uh, on that note, I would really encourage people not to use samples like from Splice and other similar platforms. And <clears throat> it... Uh, it just messes things up where you have too many aspects that are similar. Um, we have stem, we deliver stems now to, uh, available on our website. And if somebody has taken a stem, you know, something from a splice or some, I'm not trying to call out splice, but they're the biggest in that. So mentioning them, but, um, and it's not changed. Uh, then, uh, I mean, it may change in the the final mix of the, of the stereo mix, but when you're getting to the stem, it could uh, don't put up a stem that's not changed, ah, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and of course they're illegal if you don't have the right to do it, you know, and then you've got, uh, even with ones that are slightly changed, got content ID that will recognize, like we had an issue that came up the other day that there were a couple of tracks that we didn't realize had, had some of those kinds of sample packs, sample stuff in it. 
that were not changed. And uh, there was a conflict uh, in YouTube's content ID system, and we had to go track it down and we, you know, get it resolved. But then we had to go back to the composer and say, okay, you're going to have to, we're taking down your track um, and you're going to need to change it. Okay. That, that's good advice. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I even see these things now, like the demo. <laughs> I was playing with a demo in uh, the, the blocks in Logic. Oh, there's all these, there's these demo tracks you can play with in there and they've got these little loops and they all sound great, but you have to be careful because you don't know the elements of that loop and where that came from. And then it may be a nothing, but when you separate it out by itself, it, it becomes something again, right? Let me just, I just want to add one thing. Ironically, a whole bunch of those loops we actually wrote on behalf of Apple. Oh, did you? Oh, they're so, great. Yeah. They're great. We're, we're not the only ones. There are many people who do, but we've done quite a, a number over the many, many years. So it, it's, and it's fun, but we don't own those. Those are complete uh, buyouts oh, interesting, uh, where huh? Apple owns them and they, they put them up for people to be able to do whatever they want. And there are actually, there are no intellectual, there are no rights associated with those. Again, I'm that same guy. Okay, I've, I've asked my questions. I think everything's awesome. I want to come with your company and come give my music to your company. Are you looking for fully uh, produced, fully mastered, done, ready to distribute tracks? Or are you going to sometimes look at them and say, hey, we'd like you to kind of remix this piece? How does that work? It depends on the library. So um, if you are a library who directly works with composers to produce music uh, and you love these tracks, but you want some changes and, you know, of course you're going to work with the composer um, to make those adjustments. Um, and, uh, but if you're a company like APM, uh, most of our works are from libraries that we represent. So we're not dealing directly with the composers. And I mean, we have a custom music division. So in that case, of course, that's different. We work directly with the composers. We have a few small libraries that we uh, uh, we own ourselves. We have a new library uh, called Kinetic, which is just for authentic artists. Uh, um, when I say authentic artists, I don't mean that people aren't authentic. I mean that the they actually play and have social media and things under their own names. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, there's a lot of music supervisors look for that when they're looking for songs. Okay, so we're almost, I'm, I'm almost done as this musician. <laughs> if I had, uh, if I, everything sounded great, how would I submit, go about submitting or contacting your company to submit some music that was either going to be in your custom library, or maybe you would say, you know, this isn't something for our custom, but here are some people you can contact at some of the libraries that we represent. Is that something you would do? Uh, we do. We tend not to listen to music ourselves directly mm -hmm. for the most part, because we don't have the time and because we're not the ones who are doing the deals. Um, we uh, tend to just uh, refer people we have, we have a composer, uh, a submission page on our website. I don't remember the URL offhand, but it's on the website. <clears throat> and uh, so people look and then we list, the, there are certain of our libraries who really are interested on a regular basis of meeting new artists. And so uh, we have the information and the contact information for those libraries, as well as a description about the library and what they might be looking for. So we put it back onto the songwriter or composer to go out and uh, 
research that and to contact those people. Sometimes they, you know, most cases they'll hear back, not always. You know, the libraries are busy too and they get hundreds of people, you know, reaching out to them. Um, but then they'll work directly with the composer, make their own deal. What do you think of some of these companies that are out there, and I won't mention any names, that accept a lot of music promising that you may be placed with a library, for example? Yeah, I don't uh, like that model. Um, you know, there are a couple who are more prominent than others. I've never taken one track from them. I don't, <clears throat> I don't need the intermediary. You know, if a composer wants to work with somebody, they should do their research and figure out how to approach a uh, a company and uh, and you know and do do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, sure. It's not, you know maybe it's easier said than done, but uh, I think that uh, you know we want people who really believe in themselves and are really gonna really gonna push. I do want to say one other thing before I forget. Also, because we talked about some of these other non-exclusive libraries. I think that uh, there's an even more kind of insidious structure today than those um, that, uh, you know, I explained why I don't believe in those models and, you know, particularly around the glut of product and things. But the uh, there are libraries, and again, I'm not going to mention any names, that uh, are what they call performance-free and they don't have a performance license associated with it where they only work with composers and songwriters who are not affiliated with the PRO. Wow, I've never heard of this. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, it's, um, I guess I'll say it this way, it's become a bit of an epidemic. Um, and, uh, the, um, uh, and to me, they are doing a real injustice, a disservice to songwriters and composers, particularly young people who really don't know any better. How would I identify one of those? Because this is this is new information to me. I, I didn't... Um, you know, there are a million articles out there about it. It's just a model I really don't believe in. And I, I think that composers, one of the beautiful things about music is this aspect. Music tastes change all the time, you know, and, and something that is, you know, current today could get licensed into a lot of programming today, but then two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, nobody's interested. Um, but with performance revenue from the societies, not just ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, GMR in the United States, but you know, all of the societies around the world, you have an opportunity to have this, this annuity uh, uh, ongoing. And uh, I can tell you that, you know, you asked a question earlier about can composers make a living from library music? They would not make a living at all, uh, for the most part, uh, if it were not for um, performance revenue. And that's the long-term annuity that they use to support themselves and their families. And with, with these non-exclusive library, I'm sorry, these performance-free libraries uh, where you're not affiliated with a PRO, um, you're not even a, a, technically, it doesn't mean people don't violate this, allowed to be associated with a PRO. And but then there are composers who are at PROs, particularly in Europe, where they're just violating the agreements that they have with the PROs, because those PROs say every track that you write must be with the PRO, like GEMA in Germany, for example. And so what people do is they just like to write under a nom de plume or something. And uh, people are using some of those libraries without realizing 
that uh, there is still a liability because GEMA or some other society is going to say, I'm sorry, but that composer wrote that music. You have an obligation to pay us. You're violating, you don't have a performance license for that track and for that compo for anything from that composer. So uh, there's, again, there are liability issues and there's a cultural social aspect to this of uh, companies that are really undermining uh, a structure that was put in place a hundred some odd years ago to protect the rights of composers. And these companies just uh, uh, don't care about that. Thank you for sharing all that. That's, and it actually sounds really complicated, but if, if I was uh, to take my one takeaway from this whole podcast would be uh, make sure that you don't sign with a, with somebody that that's not, that takes composers that aren't associated. And the second half of that is that if you do not have PRO, this what I call long tail revenue uh, goes away, and or you may call it mailbox money. However, you like whatever you call it goes away. I'm still getting checks for music that I wrote 25 years ago. That for some reason in Japan they like my music. I don't know, but uh, without my uh, associations with the performance rights organizations, I would not have any of that. Thank you. That's awesome. That's crazy. I'll give you an example of that. Um, uh, one of our great libraries, one of our founding libraries uh, that at the time was owned by KPM, by EMI, and is now, which is owned by Sony, is called KPM. And it's probably the world's most well-known library founded in the 1940s and helped to find the sound of British television for uh, many, many decades. And in that library, which we represent exclusively here, uh, you've got the Monday Night Football theme, known as Heavy Action, wow. mm -hmm. the People's Court theme, U.S. Open, Wimbledon, This Week in Baseball, all kinds of great themes that were just library tracks that became well-known themes. And um, KPM did uh, most of all of the music for the for Superman. Uh, and I'm not talking about the movies. I'm talking about George Reeves, uh, the black and white series from 1956 to 60. And from 1957 to 1960, most of that music was KPM. And we still get performance revenues every quarter as the publisher of, of that you know, for airings here in the U.S. And that is 60 years afterwards. I mean, that's incredible. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> That's really cool. So don't don't be so easy to give it up, you know. No, don't don't sign it away. I know your day's busy, and I appreciate the time, Adam. I have one last question. No for worries. You, which is, um, sure. let's talk about the product itself, music, and mm -hmm. uh, what's the what type of. Uh, or genre probably of, of music generally gets licensed the most on a contemporary basis because so many of our writers today are contemporary mm -hmm. artists. Sure. You know, there's a variety of different kinds and we can, <clears throat> excuse me, I can only go from what's in our own search engine and in numbers and excuse me one sec. Um, you know, the most, most common searches are going to be hip hop, um, rock, um, orchestral and pop; uh, those are the primary ones that are going to be most uh, most prominent. But that doesn't mean it's everything. You know, we have a, va a vast archival collection of uh, 
of music that goes back to actual recordings that go back to the earliest days of the 20th century. So we cover every era and with all of the period pieces that are done for television. Now we do an enormous amount of licensing. I, I was at a dinner last night uh, up here in Ohio at a friend's house and she invited another couple over who are writers, actors, filmmakers, and they had just done a 25 minute short. I'd never met them before. And um, it turns out that they, uh, and they did this short, uh, about something that happened in the beginning in the early forties and in world war two. And he, the day, two days before he had closed the deal with us for <laughs> licensing our archival music from the 1940s. Cause we have authentic recordings from that era. So we see a wide variety of things that are being used, but if you look at the absolute top searches, uh, it's hip hop, rock, pop, and hybrid, uh, kind of hybrid hip hop, hybrid orchestral stuff. This is awesome. I think that you've shared so much. I think that somebody that listens to this is going to understand a lot more about the business. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to close with that you might want to share advice-wise or something that we didn't talk about when somebody's thinking about library music? Because uh, everybody thinks about, gee, I want to you know, be on stage. I want to be, you know, I want to have hit records, but they don't really understand, you know, that this is a great revenue stream. It's a, it's a great business. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, you know, it's one of the many revenue streams and uh, it's a way to get your music heard and used by people and uh, make some money. And it's just one of the anchors and one of the legs that people should should stand on. And it, it's a very creative thing because you're not writing the picture necessarily at all. Really, you're writing to an imagined picture or, you know, I don't even know how people are going to use this, but I'm going to try to find stuff that, you know, write something in my own voice. Um, you know, that is really uh, going to be interesting to people. And, uh, you know, you can get hundreds and hundreds of placements from tracks. And it's a wonderful thing to be sitting at home watching TV and all of a sudden your track comes on. <clears throat> so I think that, you know, my advice is study the business, read the books, read Don Passman's book, uh, read other ones and educate yourself. What book is that, Adam? Uh, everything you need to know about the music business. Uh, I think it's in its like eighth or 10th edition or something. It's very full to people and uh, Don Asman, the lawyer. And um, I think that also study the music that is on in the libraries already. So you can go to APM's website. We have a new releases section and you can look at the things that are in the genre or genres that you write and hear what other people are doing and ask yourself, how am I different? What can I add to this? And uh, and then make sure that everything, the, the highest quality production values, there's so much music out there, people are uh, proposing so many different things. We get a lot of really, really good people. And so you've got to really hone your skills. And um, also listen to TV and watch movies and things and see what kind of music people are uh, putting into these things and see if you can break some new ground. That's perfect. That's perfect. Adam, as always, it's really a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Take care, Michael. Ciao. Bye. Theme music for Gig with Mike Redmond was composed and produced by Other Animal. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Gig with Mike Redmond. If you like what you heard, I'd ask that you subscribe and like us. And finally, if you have questions about a job or ideas for an episode, contact me at gigwithmikeredmond at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Redmond, signing off.